Welcome back to Broken Messenger. Today's episode was sparked by a message a friend sent me. She said she was doing a devotional and it taught a good lesson. She told me the takeaway from it and I thought, you know, that is a great lesson for one of my episodes. Since I did not partake in the devotional, I'm unsure if it was written or verbal, but either way, I don't know what was covered or how it was presented. So if this is similar, I do apologize. We're going to spend some time today in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think this will marry the two together and help keep us well-balanced in Scripture. Let's start in Genesis chapter 18. We see the Lord appear to Abraham as three men. He hurries to meet the three men, and he begs them not to pass by, but to let him wash their feet and give them something to eat. Hospitality, even now, is the easiest thing to offer someone. And back then, one's reputation was heavily heavily connected to their hospitality. Even today, really, think of businesses. The ones that you feel most welcomed at, that's where you want to return to, right? So the men accept his hospitality, And there are some exchanges between them and Sarah. It's a widely known story, but we're going to skip ahead to when the men are preparing to leave. We'll pick up in verse 16 through 26. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if they will what they have done as bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went, to, went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place or the sake for the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do it right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Notice here that the Lord says, If I find fifty, I will spare the whole place for their sake. This continues, and Abraham asks about forty-five, then forty, then thirty, then twenty, and finally ten. Each time the Lord responds with, If and I will. He would spare God, he would spare Sodom and Gomorrah if he found any righteous among them. And we know that the Lord will leave the ninety-nine to save just one sheep. So I don't think it's a far jump to think that if Abraham had went down to one, that the Lord would have said, if I found one, then I would spare them. That, though, is just pure speculation, as it's not actually written out that way. So apparently satisfied with the Lord's answers or feeling like he couldn't answer and couldn't ask anymore, verse 33 says, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left Abraham and Abraham returned home. Next, we're going to jump into chapter 19, and we're going to see Lot's interactions with the two angels. But before that, let's review a little of who Lot was. So he was Abraham's nephew. Lot's father died, and I don't think it specifically says, but judging by the fact that Abraham's father takes Lot in, I'm guessing he was still a young boy. So Lot lives with Abraham and his grandfather, and then the Lord comes to Abraham. Now, this is before what we just read about, and he tells him to leave. Abraham obeyed, and Lot went with him. 
So some fighting begins among Abraham and Lot's herders. So Abraham tells Lot, let's not fight, let's separate, and we could have our own land. Lot went towards the Jordan and made his tent near Sodom. Later, a war breaks out and Sodom is conquered and all their belongings taken. Lot was among those carried off. Someone escaped and went and informed Abraham what had happened to Lot. Abraham called his army and overcame those who had overcome Sodom. And Abraham rescued Lot. Now Lot had surrounded himself in sin, living in Sodom, and his desire for the worldly possessions had overpowered his righteousness that had once been instilled in him. Though through Lot's decisions, we can see a lot of selfish decision-making. But in chapter 19 of Genesis, we see two angels arriving in Sodom, and we see Lot playing out the same eagerness to provide hospitality for the angels as we did with Abraham. At first, we see the angels refuse and then agree to come back to his home so that Lot can feed them and they can rest overnight. They go back to his house and they eat the meal provided for them. But before they went to bed, we see the full depravity of Sodom. In verse 4 of chapter 19, it says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men of every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Notice here, it doesn't say some men from all parts or men from every part of the city. But in fact, it says all the men, both young and old, from every part of the city came and surrounded the home of Lot. Now let's see how all the men of Sodom worked. Continuing in verse 5, it says, They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Notice he calls them friends. Maybe he is saying friends to defuse the situation so as not to further escalate the problem. Or perhaps he's saying friends because they were friends, or at the very least, people he associated with. Continuing in verse 8, Lot says, Look, I have two daughters who have not slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to, to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, to our ears, hearing that, we're like, excuse me? What is he doing? But let's, we've got to think culturally. It was the custom to protect your guest no matter what back then. It also demonstrates how much sin had taken over Lot's life, living there in Sodom. However, my study Bible gives two possibilities that could give Lot some better light. The first scenario is that perhaps he knew that his daughter's fiancés would rescue them, saving both his daughters and his guests from the wicked mob. And the other possibility, which I'm more inclined to believe, is that he knew the homosexual men would not be interested in his daughters, and he hoped they would leave, growing bored with the situation. And the reason I'm more inclined to believe that second scenario is more possible is because we see the mob's reaction continuing in verse 9 of chapter 19. It says, Get out of our way! They replied, This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them! They kept bringing down. They kept bringing pressure on Lot, and they moved forward to break down the door. If the men, at the very least, had been acquaintances with Lot, look how quickly they turned on him. The amount of wickedness in Sodom had long left loyalty and respect behind. They were driven by wicked lust and were going to take what they came for, either by demand or by force. The angels had enough of the wickedness, yanked Lot back inside, and they took over the situation. They tell Lot to take all his family with him and get out of Sodom. Verse 13, because we are going to destroy this place, the outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. 
Now remember back when the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said he would spare Sodom if at the very least ten people were found to be righteous. And how I talked about how I guessed if there had been one righteous, he would have spared Sodom. But the Lord sent his angels to destroy it, and he is telling Lot to take his family and run. He is sparing Lot and his family, I'm guessing because they were the only righteous found in Sodom. In Second Peter, Peter calls Lot righteous. So despite living among this despite living among and succumbing to the amount of sin all around him, he was still credited with righteousness. Lot goes and tells his son-in-laws to go, that Sodom is going to be destroyed, and they laugh at him. They think he's joking. Evidently, sin and corruption had been such a normal part of Lot's life that when he gave the direction to his son-in-laws, they didn't believe them, but they didn't believe him. I listened to a sermon the other day, and it talked about how as believers, our word must be solid. We have to say what we mean and, or, and mean what we do or something along those lines. But the bottom line was this. If someone can't believe us about mundane things, how will they ever believe us about Jesus and the gospel? So apparently Lot's word wasn't worth anything, that they didn't believe him when he said, run. The angels tell Lot to hurry and take his wife and his two daughters and get out of there, or they would be swept away with the judgment of Sodom. Still yet, in verse 16 of Genesis 19, it says, When he, which is Lot, hesitated, the men grasped his hands in the hands of his wife and two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Lot goes on still yet to have a dialogue about where to go and still dragging his feet. And the angels agree to the request of Lot, and say, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. Lot has a lot of hesitation. He has become content in this life there in Sodom. He was a successful businessman and likely had money, position, and power in, there in Sodom. The angels were asking him to leave all that behind, all his possessions. And while it's easy for us to say, go, Lot! What if you were asked today to flee your house and all its possessions? your neighborhood, your friends, your job, and go far away? Would you be quick to flee? Or would you hesitate? Would you th say things like, what about my car? What about my pool? What about my collection? What about my everything I've worked so hard for? I think these are the words that we would utter if we were asked to flee. Remember the angel said, I cannot do anything until you, meaning Lot, reach the city. I think the angels and the Lord are being more merciful to Lot here. Lot probably wasn't fully deserving of this mercy, but on account of Abraham, the righteousness was accredited to him. You and I, we are also not deserving of the mercy we receive, but on account of Jesus, righteousness is accredited to us. Sometimes the righteous can have an impact on the unrighteous. Never stop praying and pleading for our brothers and sisters who might not, at the moment, be deserving of the mercy. It worked for Abraham, and it can work for us too. So again, the angels say, I cannot do anything until you, meaning Lot, arrives. It doesn't say until all of you, but it says you, Lot, must reach the city safely so we can bring down judgment on Sodom. Verse 23 of chapter 19 says, By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah for the, from the Lord out of heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all the th living, all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. 
but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. You see, Lot made it to the land, but Lot's wife did not. Why didn't she? Was it because she, was it because she had been turned into a pillar of salt? No. It says, but Lot's wife looked back. I don't think this was a glance over her shoulder as she ran forward. If that was the case, she would have arrived at the city at the time that Lot did. I also don't think it was a simple case of not being able to run as fast as Lot. No, this was a result of stopping to look back at her home. According to gotquestions.com, the Hebrew word for looked back has more meaning than our English words. It meant to regard, to consider, to pay attention to. There was a longing to know what was going to happen to her life back there. The Bible doesn't say if this was an instant judgment or not, though it would have been justified had it been. What I am more inclined to think is that her turning to a pillar of salt was a natural consequence of her own actions. Because she stopped to look back, because she lagged behind, she was consumed. I mean, the angels had said that they would be swept away if they did not hurry. There's much debate on whether she was turned to actual salt or her remains were covered in salt. There's a lot of debate on scientifically if it was possible for a literal body to turn to salt. I don't want to get caught up in all that. Because the lesson to be turned because the lesson to be learned from Lot's wife is not science, but the condition of her heart and her mind. Lot's wife had a longing for her life of sin, because Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters, we will hate one and love the other, or love one and despise the other. It was not possible for her to long for her past life and move forward in God's current plans for her. She chose the master, and that ultimately cost her her life. In Matthew 10.3, Jesus says, Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Sometimes the past, we just, want to, we just want it back. We want to relive those good times. We want to have those memories be more than just mere memories. Sometimes the life of sin we once lived, it held more fun times. Sometimes the season we came out of had easier times. And sometimes the season we're headed towards just plain sucks. At least that's how we see it or we feel about it. Joseph being sold into slavery? I bet that sucked. Joseph Joseph being thrown into prison and forgotten for a crime he didn't even commit? I bet that sucked. Paul and Silas in prison after being beaten for casting out a demon out of a female slave? I bet that sucked. And Jesus on the cross, the most innocent of innocent, dying the death of a criminal? I bet that sucked. But none of those men looked back on what was easier, funner, simpler times. They looked ahead, eyes locked on Jesus and what Jesus was calling them to do. Paul says in his letters to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the price for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says he forgets the past and presses into what God has called him to go, where God has called him to go. When we take our eyes off Jesus, they wander. Sometimes the past, sometimes to a life of sin. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, just like when we take our eyes off the road, we get off course and it's incredibly dangerous. I have totaled two cars in my life, both while I was 18 or 19 years old. Both times, I took my eyes and mind off the road. The first time, I fell asleep and I ended up in a tree, destroying my car. The second time... The best way I can describe it is my mind wasn't there. I wasn't asleep, but I also wasn't there. I took my focus off what it should have been on and was daydreaming about who knows what 
and I tumbled the truck nose over tailgate and then rolled it three times. Both times I walked away with minor wounds, not even a single broken bone. Fortunately, my poor choices did not result like Lot's wife in losing my life. God's grace was on my life even then when I didn't show him an ounce of respect. In fact, by that second accident, that time in my life, I was spitting in his face. Fortunately, he knew what was still to come, but in those moments, it sucked. I didn't have my eyes on Jesus then, and it'd be a long time before I got them there, but now that they are there, I never want to risk it all again, physical or spiritual. I want to keep my eyes laser-focused on Jesus and saying yes and amen to whatever and wherever he calls me to. Have you been looking back? Have you taken your eyes off of Jesus? Have you been living surrounded by a life of, life of sin and content in that sin, even when it's not your own sin? Do you have a longing for the way things used to be? There's still time. We haven't been turned into pillars of salt. I told you guys when we started this episode that I wanted to balance the scripture so that we weren't in jeopardy of leaning too far one direction. While we do not want to look back and long for the, and focus on the past, it's not only acceptable, but good to review where we have come from. In Acts 7, Stephen is going, giving a speech to the Sanhedrin, and he recounts the lives from Abraham clear through to Moses. In verse 51 through 53, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who, who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, yet have not obeyed it. The Sanhedrin then go on to stone and murder Stephen. You see, Stephen was reviewing their history in hopes to teach them, to correct their past, to avoid the same pitfalls of their ancestors. It didn't work, though, because this time, instead of looking back, looking back and seeing the truth, they were blinded by rage and anger at what was right in front of them, which was the threat to their contentment, the threat to their comfortable lifestyle. In the Gospels, Jesus even talks about Noah, Elijah, and uh, there's, there's a time and a purpose to look back on time, but there's never a moment to spend our time looking back and yearning for the past to the exclusion of the present. Same can be said for the future. There is a purpose to prepare for the future, but not to the exclusion of the current. Jesus says in Luke 9.62, no one who put a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for service. Any farmer knows that if you're plowing and look back, you're no longer going to have straight rows for harvesting. But on the flip side, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. You see, there is a time and a place for both looking back and looking forward. And it's not the act of either of those that is the problem, but it's the condition of the heart. So I encourage us all, myself included, to ask God to reveal where we are looking back with the wrong motive, to reveal what we are holding on to that is preventing us from making it to where he has called us, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us keep our eyes laser focused on Jesus and to stay strong from distractions. I hope that you found this episode to be both encouragement and a challenge, not only on the topic of at hand, but also to make sure that we keep scripture balanced. It's super important that we always balance out the scripture so that we're not in jeopardy of going to one extreme or the other. Thank you for listening to this episode of Broken Messenger.